What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, coming back at you yet again with a brand new edition of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Welcome to the show guys, as ever, thank you for tuning in, and if you did miss last week's podcast, do go catch it on demand, it was of course the Elimination Chamber 2019 Alternative pre-show as well while you're there. Be sure to check out all the great shows that we have for you here on Lords of Pain Radio, covering everything from Ring of Honor and New Japan Pro Wrestling to, of course, WWE itself. Even our brand new uh, All Elite Wrestling podcast that goes out on a Saturday. Let's see if I can get the name here uh, right. I believe it is all about All Elite Wrestling with Shane and Miss Fan, so go check that out while you're at it. And of course, the return of the Doc, the guy who I took over from here on Wednesday nights, has returned to Lords of Pain Radio, re-enthused by WWE's product. Uh, you can catch him now on Sundays, so go check out all those great shows. And of course, Sports Entertainment is Dead is with you every single week here on Wednesday nights. It is post-pay-per-view week. That means that, of course, we are here with the performance art review for Elimination Chamber 2019. But before we get to that, first of all, a quick word in the way of an apology to those of you who may listen to Aftershock, which is, of course, our live post-pay-per-view podcast here on Lords of Pain Radio, hosted by Steve and myself. This last week, we weren't able to bring you an episode of Aftershock following Elimination Chamber 2019 because of technical issues. Uh, Basically, I believe Steve doesn't have much in the way of internet access currently, so we weren't able to do that for you. Hopefully things will be back to normal in time for Fastlane in a couple of weeks. Not long to go though, so if it isn't, I thought what I would do is address something that I was hoping to address actually on Aftershock this last week, but given that I don't know if We'll be back in fighting shape for Fastlane, and then after that, of course, it is the WrestleMania Aftershock. I thought I best might as well deal with it while it's on my mind here on Sports Entertainment is Dead. So before we get into the performance art review of Elimination Chamber 2019, uh, some some news regarding my future on Aftershock. It is with uh, something of a heavy heart that I say that the post-WrestleMania 35 Aftershock will be my last Aftershock, at least for the foreseeable future. I've really enjoyed doing Aftershock for the last year with Steve. It's been an absolute blast. But things have changed in my really real-life priorities need to be sort of realigned somewhat and an emphasis placed back on what's most important to me, both personally and professionally. Uh, And in order to free up some room, in order to bring priorities that should be at the top of the list to the forefront that means that I've had to step away from my aftershock duties as I say at least for the foreseeable future it's been a hell of a year that I've had on aftershock and I want to make sure that I go out on a big show and of course there is no bigger show than Wrestlemania in the WWE calendar and hopefully this year it will see my boy Seth Rollins complete his years-long redemption arc by capturing the Universal Championship. We can but hope, so it feels like the perfect opportunity really for me to step back. The likelihood is one day I'll be back on Aftershock. It's not so much a goodbye as a see you later, uh, but when that will be, I'm not sure. And in the meantime, you'll still be able to catch me with Steve on any episode of Retro Shock that we're able to get out there, and hopefully as Steve's uh, schedule, I hope, calms down sometime soon, we'll be able to put one of those together for you sooner rather than later, so I'll still be on Retro Shock with Steve, and of course here every week on Sports Entertainment is Dead, and most weeks on the right side of the pond on Fridays with Maverick and Mazza as well, so there's still going to be plenty of plan here on Lords of Pain Radio, I'm sure you're sorry to hear, uh, but after Shock, as I say, I'll be stepping away, you'll still have me for Fastlane, if we manage to get a Fastlane Aftershock out there, and you'll still have me on the Aftershock following WrestleMania as well. But as I say, priorities change, and as they change, so does my capacity to be able to fulfil all of the obligations that I have here on LordsofPain.net, which are many, to be fair. Uh, So I'm having to step away for the foreseeable future, but hopefully one day I will be back in the saddle with Steve on Aftershock. WrestleMania 35, in the meantime, Got that to look forward to. Fastlane as well. And uh, we'll be back hopefully sooner rather than later with all your usual post-pay-per-view first reactions. Because we didn't do an Aftershock after Elimination Chamber 2019, you can still catch what my first reactions were to the pay-per-view in my column. 
Just Business Elimination Chamber 2019, the first reaction is still available to read, of course, on lordsofpain.net, so you can go check my gut reactions there. That was posted after my first viewing of the show, about 12 hours after the pay-per-view went off air. And generally speaking, it left me feeling rather quite positive. I thought that Elimination Chamber 2019 was the kind of pay-per-view that sort of demonstrated in a microcosm the bizarre split that we have in WWE where they seemingly take one or two steps forward only to then almost at the same time seemingly take one or two steps back which I think is probably giving the product a sense of treading water at the moment but it's left me feeling relatively upbeat and I detail the reasons why in my column the first reaction as I say still available on lordsofpain.net I won't go into too much detail as a result you can go check out the column if you want that detail Suffice to say, in very general terms, I think that it's left the road to WrestleMania looking very healthy. Healthier than it is unhealthy anyway. And I think that the post-WrestleMania landscape is suddenly starting to look very, very enticing if WrestleMania itself is able to hold up its end of the bargain that seemingly is being struck by WWE's weekly television. I understand, of course, that Monday Night Raw this last week wasn't exactly, you know, the, the best version of the show that we've seen. I haven't been able to quite catch any of it fully myself yet as of recording. I'm recording this on Tuesday night, but I'll hopefully have the time to do that sometime in the week before I post my regular Sunday column. I will say, though, that having checked a few of the clips out on YouTube, having read the results, it does certainly seem somewhat bizarre given the nature of how they've suddenly brought these NXT talents on board. Something about it makes me feel like maybe it's more of a one-off than an introduction, permanent introduction of theirs to the main roster, though you never know with WWE. It's worth not forgetting, however, that in spite of a, a relatively lacklustre Monday Night Raw that fills you with concern, Elimination Chamber 2019 was still in and of itself a good pay-per-view. Uh, a short, well, I say short, it was still three hours long, three and a quarter hours long, but by modern standards, a relatively short pay-per-view. That, and it, by the way, it was you could tell that was the case when you watched it, incidentally, that it was a three-hour pay-per-view, and it, and it felt very refreshing for that. Also felt refreshing that a lot of the undercard matches were given what I felt were a relatively suitable length of time to play out. I think maybe the Braun Strowman thing went on a little too long, but generally speaking, I thought things were well-judged in terms of the match length and the show length. Uh, but also it was a, an event that left me feeling relatively upbeat because it felt like the right people won. In in almost every quarter, it felt like the right people won. And while some of WWE's more... <clears throat> what's the word that I'm looking for here? I don't want to be too harsh on them. I guess I'll settle for uninspiring pet projects, namely the Baron Corbin project. Look like they have absolutely no intention of slowing down anytime soon. Generally speaking, there were more upticks than there were downturns on the show. Uh, and I, I feel like, you know, WWE sometimes don't get credit where it's due. We get so obsessed sometimes with criticising them that when they do do something well and something good, they don't quite get the, the positive reinforcement that perhaps we should be sure to give them. Uh, and I sometimes wonder, honestly, how much that plays into the haphazard nature. If we don't react positively to when they do something positive, they're not going to know to keep on doing that sort of thing. Though, you know, I, I appreciate the argument doesn't carry a great deal of water when you start, start scrutinising it, but nonetheless, it, I think the general point stands at least. So overall, I guess what I'm rambling towards saying here is that Elimination Chamber 2019 was a good pay-per-view. I don't think it was outstanding, I don't think it was excellent, I think it was good. Though I do think it featured at least one outstanding match on the card. Excuse me, I've got a bit of a frog in my throat today. <clears throat> I guess we'll start with the, the main event, because as always I'll keep the show to an hour, and it depends on how long I ramble on about these matches, that will depend on what I get to cover or not. So let's start with the main event to make sure that we, we squeeze that in. I'm talking of course about the final match on the show, which was the men's elimination chamber match wrestled for the WWE Championship. Daniel Bryan defending against Kofi Kingston, Samoa Joe, AJ Styles... Randy Orton, and Jeff Hardy. Not necessarily the most exhilarating lineup. The presence of Jeff Hardy, Randy Orton in, particularly, in particular felt rather dour. But certainly a lineup, the talent of which you couldn't come to criticise. And indeed, one of the things that I wrote in my first reaction column was that with a lineup like that, it's going to be very difficult to exceed expectations. Now, I read 
sometime I think before the show that there was there was talk about the women's elimination chamber headlining the pay per view. It was a first ever, obviously, for the inaugural women's tag team championships. I don't know if that's true, and if it is, I don't know when the decision was made to switch the two chambers. But I think it was the right decision because. We'll get to the women's chamber shortly. I think that was a, a very good iteration of the genre in its own right. But I don't think it had a patch on the men's chamber this year. Because I think the men's chamber this year is quite possibly one-off. If not outright the best elimination chamber match maybe we've ever seen. I think it stood as something that was inspired quite consciously by past versions. It seemed to very actively play on the pursuit of Daniel Bryan in 2014 it had that same kind of 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 chase tone to it that's a very clumsy phrase but you know that that sense of someone very actively sprinting towards an objective that just kept sort of kept one inch out of reach I think it very much captured that essence of 2014's elimination chamber at the same time it also captured the the sense of miraculousness, of welcome impossibility that the 2012 Elimination Chamber for the World Heavyweight Championship captured when you had Santino in the final two, but it did it with a, a certain more degree of, of, of seriousness, of gravitas, because it was Kofi Kingston, and, it, and it, it wasn't played for laughs, it was played straight, and I think as a result, it was far more effective. But it's going to be a conclusion to that chamber that lives long in the memory. I'm often a believer that wrestling matches, the memory of a wrestling match, is heavily informed, more heavily informed by the manner in which it concludes than by anything else. You Think about the streak-ending match between Brock Lesnar and The Undertaker, for example, or the SummerSlam match between John Cena and Seth Rollins. People will immediately move to lambast those matches for ending the streak, or for Jon Stewart defining who walked out as WWE Champion. But both of them, I think, well, maybe not so much the, the streak ending match, but certainly the SummerSlam match that I refer to is a very good match. It doesn't get those props, though, because the ending overshadows the content. By the same token, I don't think anybody would want to ever talk about that WrestleMania 30 match between The Undertaker and Brock Lesnar ever if it wasn't for the conclusion, again, overshadowing the rather poor content. So you have two different examples of the same phenomena there. And I think that as a result, the conclusion to the men's elimination chamber match this last Sunday was very important. It was done very well because that's going to come to inform the lasting legacy of of our, you know, the lasting memory we have of that version of the elimination chamber match. It was very emotive, very powerful, but it it didn't get carried away either. It didn't let itself get carried away with the feel-good moment because I do think it would have been an error in judgment to have had Kofi Kingston win the WWE Championship in that Elimination Chamber match. Uh, And I think Daniel Bryan retaining is the right decision considering he's on the form of his life right now. I'll come back to both individual performances shortly. But I think ultimately, so it, it it retained a strong sense of character logic while at the same time being able to demonstrate something new inspired by something old. And I think that that combination of factors shows a very confident composition and proves that Elimination Chamber match to be expert artistry, I guess is the phrase that I would choose to use for it. Generally speaking, though, we shouldn't overlook the content of the match in general. Not only were there original spots, for lack of a better term, original exchanges, Kofi sort of just free-falling off of the chamber, the moment where Daniel Bryan climbs up and sort of sits cross-legged on top of the pod, thinking that he'd get forgotten about, only to find Kofi Kingston confronting him shortly thereafter in, in, a, in a rather compelling moment. Um, and also just generally the 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 content was very... Restrained in general terms, I think you didn't really have any crazy stunts. I mean, you had a couple of you know big moments, but you didn't have anything too insane in there. And it seemed more focused on being a technically wrestled elimination chamber match rather than a brutal elimination chamber match. And I think when the elimination chamber itself so clearly looks so heavily sanitized from what it had been, it's been made safer, which in one way should be applauded, but in another one raises issues with the way that WWE choose to present the concept. I felt like what we saw was an Elimination Chamber method best followed in lieu of how the Chamber is altered. 
Again, very clumsy way of saying that. What I mean is a bit like how we've seen a few examples of how you can do a Hell in a Cell match in a PG environment. I turn particularly to Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose version. We saw, I think, on Sunday the perfect demonstration of how to effectively do an Elimination Chamber match in a PG environment as well in a way that makes the chamber feel relevant, while at the same time maintaining that sense of sterilized violence that dominates WWE's product today. So kudos to them on that front. The design of it was was very good from an aesthetic point of view. It was also very strong from a character point of view. What I loved so much about it was, yes, it was a more restrained version of the chamber, and people who enjoy Elimination Chambers for hard-hitting, violent action may, as a result, feel perhaps a little lukewarm about it. But for people who are character-driven fans like myself, people who love to see character performances that offer themselves up for for inspection, that offer themselves up for exploration, that allow you to dive into subtext, to dive into continuity. If you're a fan of that ilk, then this year's men's Elimination Chamber match will be right up your alley. In a curious way, and this is going to sound like something of a random comparator here, it reminds me very much of the second season of Lost. Now, I'm a big fan of Lost, more so than a lot of people who felt disenfranchised with the television show the longer it went on. But my favourite season of Lost is the second season, which not a lot of people love all that much. And the reason is because I feel it's the most character-driven. There are also examples in in cinema. Film is 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 a huge love of mine. I much preferred, for example, I mean, I'm not much of a Harry Potter fan, generally speaking anyway, but I actually much preferred the second Fantastic Beasts spin-off that got released this last winter than I did the first one, because even though the first one's a little more whimsical and a little more action-packed, the second one was more character-driven. I basically, what I'm trying to drive at is I love slower-paced character studies, and I felt like, at its heart, that's what this year's Elimination Chamber 2019 Men's WWE Championship match was. It was a character study, a character study of Kofi Kingston, a character study of Daniel Bryan, and in a slightly lesser way, a character study of Randy Orton and Samoa Joe as well. I think Jeff Hardy and AJ Styles struggled to make a mark, because really their characters aren't that well fleshed out. Perhaps 10 years ago, Jeff Hardy would have been able to leave more of a mark, but not so much now. And I think AJ Styles' lack of character has been an issue with him for some time now. I think, obviously, let's talk about Kofi Kingston. He was the big kind of Cinderella story, to use the cliche, going into this Sunday's pay-per-view. I had contextual issues with what they did with Kofi this last week that I explained in my Sunday column last week. Not because I had an issue with Kofi being put into that position necessarily, but just the manner in which they did it. Rumours abound that they designed the week's story around Mustafa Ali and then they just inserted Kofi Kingston and, and decided to tell exactly the same story. I think that was a mistake because I think what it raises are a series of narrative and character issues with the fiction that was spun and it's going to all be about the follow-up in other words Kofi Kingston speaking about the character not the performer and we'll underscore that here because it's important to understand that's where I'm coming from but Kofi Kingston the character uh, is a chronic underachiever in the sense that you know, as a single star, he never exceeded the mid-card. His greatest achievement was, you know, a Survivor Series victory over Randy Orton. That's as high as he ever got. Um, and most of his career has been spent drifting between teams. He found success with the New Day. He's been in the tag team ranks now for several years, not really competing all that much as a single star. He has, at the very best, really, again, speaking of the character, sort of just trod water for the last, certainly the last two years, let's say. I think you could maybe extend the argument, but certainly for the last two years. It is therefore difficult for me, without foreshadowing being done, without a character arc being built, to just accept, suddenly and overnight, that Kofi Kingston has become a world-beater, who can pin Daniel Bryan clean, who can pin Samoa Joe clean, who can pin Jeff Hardy clean, all consecutively, all inside of an hour. I think the way that his character was written in the Elimination Chamber was perfectly done, and I had no issues there. But I felt like the Gauntlet performance was a little bit of a narrative demand too many for me, because it felt like the characterization... I was was expected, I was asked, in the way the show was presented, in the way Kofi was presented in that Gauntlet match, I was asked to accept a radical change in the characterization of Kofi Kingston 
almost overnight. And I and I have an issue with that contextually. Having said that, if they follow it up well, and the rumours are now that he may wrestle Daniel Bryan for the WWE Championship, not at WrestleMania, but at Fastlane, which feels a little misguided to me, but nonetheless, if they follow up and allow Kofi some more world-beating performances in a main event spot then ultimately that will recast my ability to enjoy his performance in the Gauntlet match because it will prove itself to be the beginning of a new character arc rather than just a sudden and rather curious incidental turn. If that is all it remains, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to struggle with it, in honesty. So I had contextual issues with that, but like I say, I felt the way the character was then presented in the Elimination Chamber match was perfect. Somebody who was able to excel in a chaotic environment, someone who was able to leave something of an impressive mark... I haven't been able to watch it a second time, but I believe Kofi was the one who may have eliminated Randy Orton in the match. I guess I'll just fact-check that here. I've got the page up here. And uh, yes, he was. He eliminated Randy Orton with a trouble in Paradise. And Orton was his only elimination. And a big elimination. So I felt like that was judged brilliantly. I loved the moment where he confronted Daniel Bryan on top of the pod cell. I loved the freneticism, the franticness of his... Uh, final performance opposite Daniel Bryan when it got down to two men, which which was an incredible sequence to behold. Got a little scrappy, you know. They lost a little discipline in their pursuit of of creating that exhilarating excitement. I felt, but nonetheless, generally speaking, it was very effective. And the manner in which you know that they kind of uh, uh, improvised their way around what looked to me like a perhaps slightly botched uh, label lock at the end there. I may be mistaken in that judgment, but generally speaking, I thought that was very good as well. I'm saying generally speaking a lot today. Um, but yeah, I thought Kofi was, was presented very compellingly and very well, and, and the crowd were allowed the opportunity to really get behind him, and it really the story swelled brilliantly, uh, and I think concluded perfectly as well, and it was it felt genuinely emotive seeing Kofi's reaction after the match, seeing the New Day come running down, them talking in his ear, you know, head to head. I thought that was a really nice moment as well, and I feel really... I think sometimes people forget how good the New Day are because of the fun games, and I would like to see a little bit more serious inflected into their act over the coming weeks at least uh, to see them show the world again look we're not all just fun and games it's not all pancakes and bootios we're here to prove a point and we're good enough to do it so it'll be interesting to see where Kofi goes from here but his arc within the chamber was brilliant I thought Samoa Joe was presented fantastically within the chamber match as well he was this almost unstoppable juggernaut and the, the exchanges between him and Daniel Bryan which sort of became a refrain in the first 10 to 15 minutes I thought was so fantastic and so brilliant and and just really able to evoke a reaction out of you the way that Daniel Bryan would chop Joe and he would just move forwards and respond with a single chop that would floor Bryan I mean it was just brilliantly judged so simplistic you know completely one dimensional so so easily done easily thought of but it made its mark it was it was a, it was a testament to how less is more you know just a simple little moment like that is 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 storytelling in wrestling at its absolute finest and character work at its absolute finest i adored every second of those interactions and i thought samojo generally speaking you know the way he was eliminated by styles with the phenomenal forearm was great uh, and and he was a force to be reckoned with it felt like he was presented in a respectful manner but didn't but wasn't overplayed and I, and i thought as a result you know it was again another example of how brilliantly judged this entire affair was randy orton as well deserves props his kind of fashionably late lethality is how i described it in my first reaction was brilliantly done in the kind of almost lackadaisical casual way he sauntered in as the final entrant and you know the the casual way he would nail moves on people and there was just a sense of of just incredible confidence and and just this egotistical self-assuredness that was then backed up by his actions in the ring. I thought it was a, I thought it was the best Randy Orton performance that we've had in quite some time. And his the manner of, in which he eliminated AJ Styles, that RKO, but that sort of paused, that sort of hesitate, hesitant RKO, I thought was was really cool as well. It would have been easy to do the the kind of the you know the sudden RKO out of nowhere as AJ flies through the air. I guess maybe they even were were trying for that, but the way it kind of ended up happening visually was so much better and so much cooler you know the way that he kind of just locked his hands it was almost like that secondary pause was a taunt to AJ like a silent taunt I really loved it and I really loved Orton in the match and again someone who didn't overstay his welcome as for Jeff Hardy and AJ Styles 
There's not really much to say on that front. Both performed admirably, as you would expect. I did like that there was a little character inflection in Jeff Hardy's performance in the sense that he was his usual self-immolating self. Uh, God, my my phrasing today is is just on fire, guys. His his self-immolating self. Uh, when he hit, I mean, the swanton onto AJ, who was draped over the ring post, I thought was really quite cool. Uh, and again, another example, actually, of, of how the match was interested in doing new things and presenting fresh ideas in the content as well as the character. And again, you know, played his role fine, wasn't in there too long, was eliminated uh, in fairly speedy fashion, but but was able to really contribute to the quality of the match while he was in there. And AJ was AJ. I mean, you know, the guy doesn't put on sloppy performances. He doesn't put on poor performances, but he's not exactly a character performer. And I thought that that really showed in what was, as I said earlier, a character study of an Elimination Chamber match in almost every degree. So, what I mean, what I would like, they seem to be teasing this Randy Orton AJ Styles feud. And provided it's not for the championship, I'd actually be quite happy to watch that at WrestleMania. But I think it's it's time for them to really think about who they want AJ Styles as a character to be and to develop it beyond, oh, he's getting angry again because someone's got under his skin. And you can kind of just see exactly that feud coming yet again for him because of the character that Orton has been playing, this kind of particularly malicious version of Orton. So we'll see how that pans out. I mean, the match itself, though, would be fun at, at WrestleMania, certainly, and have something to contribute to the card there. I hope it just sees a little character development. I thought AJ Styles showed his wafer-thin character by struggling to really leave an impactful mark on what was an otherwise tremendous match. But Daniel Bryan, I mean, as much as we talk about Kofi Kingston, and, and Kofi Kingston deserves all the props in the world for what he achieved on Sunday, certainly, Daniel Bryan, to me, I thought, stole the show. I thought Daniel Bryan was, as good as he has been, he was even better yet again. It's like he reached another level, not just with his promo before the match, which was fantastic, but his actual performance in the match. It was smug, it was lethal, it was aggressive, it was restrained, it was smart. I mean, it really was one of the finest individual in-ring performances that I can remember seeing quite possibly in the last 12 months, maybe even longer than that. I mean, it was from from a character... I mean, obviously, from the technical point of view, it was as flawless as Daniel Bryan's performances always are, with the exception of that awkward moment with the label lock at the end. But from a character point of view, I've often I've often said my issue with Daniel Bryan matches is that they can feel a little detached. They can feel so precise, so well executed, that it feels like they don't really have much in the way of some heart or soul. They lack the viscera of more affecting matches. And that's why I've always preferred the CM Punk Brock Lesnar match at SummerSlam 2013 to the Daniel Bryan John Cena match. But I thought that if that's a, a, a viable criticism to level at the majority of Bryan's library, then what we saw on Sunday was exactly the kind of match that I've been waiting to see, which is a match that has that extra little bit of, of tangible, raw emotion to it and that sense of viscera to it, not because it was necessarily violent, but just because it was one that evoked an emotive response from you, whether it was him, like I say, smugly sitting cross-legged on top of the pod, whether it was him taking the fight to Smojo, and by the way, side note here, I absolutely adored the fact that they weren't afraid to start this match off as villain versus villain, and the interactions between Brian and Joe prove yet again what I have always said and what I expand on in my book 101 WWE Matches to See Before You Die, which is very much the book that supports sports entertainment is dead because it lays out the benefits of performance art thinking in WWE's product in full. The 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 resource that heel versus heel, to use the traditional term, presents is invaluable and just waiting to be tapped into. And we saw another, it provided you lean into the villainy of both characters, it always works. And we saw that again on, on Sunday between Joe and Brian. But from that point, from, like I say, the, 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 the spot on top of the pod, which I loved, and, and just generally his performance, the way he, he interacts with Kofi at the conclusion, I thought it was an absolutely outstanding performance from Brian. And if I was into star ratings, it would be 5 out of 5 or 10 out of 10, if not 11 out of 10. There aren't enough words to describe how much I enjoyed him, how much I admired that performance, and how much I think I'm going to be extolling its virtues for a very, very long time to come. To me, that was a career-best performance from Daniel Bryan, and that's saying something, considering the career that Daniel Bryan has had. And this new character has imbued his career with such fresh life and, and such 
interest and, and has allowed SmackDown Live to become interesting. It, it's been an absolute revelation and the performance on Sunday was revelatory as well. So all in all, it was these individual character performances that I wanted to highlight here that I thought made the Elimination Chamber match for the WWE title on Sunday so absolutely stunningly brilliant. One of the, if not the best Elimination Chamber match I think I've ever seen. Can't wait to go back and find the time to revisit it. It's certainly going to be very difficult to imagine a match that could top it for main event of the year come December. I don't want to get too carried away. But it certainly set a very high standard indeed. A very high standard. We should be talking about that match for years to come and I think it should be a barometer by which we measure the success of future Elimination Chamber matches as well, whether they be singles or tag team. And it goes to prove the strength of wrestling when it's founded upon a base of character and character development. Because that's what we got in Oodles. And I adored every second of it. I can't wait to see it again. It's left me excited. And yeah, just generally I thought fantastic. And and, and spiced up even more by the fact the content itself was interested in doing new things. So absolutely brilliant, outstanding, transcendent effort from SmackDown Live's men's contingent there. And really left Elimination Chamber 2019... Uh, to go off air on on a high point, and I think that that counts for a lot. In the same way the conclusion of a match heavily defines the legacy of a match, so too does the conclusion of a pay-per-view heavily define the legacy of a pay-per-view. So, yeah, well done, guys. So, we're coming up on the half-hour mark. That leaves me a nice space here to put in a little advert break, as is tradition here on Sports Entertainment is Dead. And when we come back, I will be talking about the Women's Tag Team Championship Elimination Chamber match. And if we get a little bit of time, maybe a couple of the other things that happen on the show, though, generally speaking, I felt the undercard was rather quite woeful. Uh, but we'll see what happens in a few short seconds. Stay with me, folks, and I'll be back in just a tick. As your interior designer, I'm saying do everything in black. Walls, sofa, carpet, goldfish, everything. Um, can we not have a bit of color? Maybe one tiny highlight in Battleship Grey. It's your home, so you should be in charge. With Avancard's flexible home improvement loan, you are. You can choose any repayment period that works best for you up to 84 months. That's seven years. Find out more at avancard.ie. Lending criteria terms and conditions apply. New applications only. Seven-year term applies to minimum loan value of €20,000. Avancard DAC trading as Avancard is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Welcome back to the show, ladies and gents. Thanks for sticking with me. If... As I said at the top of the show, you missed last week's show. Go check it out on demand and all the other great shows available on Lords of Pain Radio. Also, be sure to check out the great wealth of columns that we've been sending you away on lordsofpain.net. Mine hit every Sunday with the Sunday column, which just covers some of my thoughts on some of the week's more interesting events, usually in WWE. Also, be sure in a couple of weeks to check out my February retrospective. I'll be doing one of those every month for the foreseeable future. So plenty to really sink your teeth into. And if you haven't been a member of LOP Forums, do go sign up and check out what's going on with our most recent writing tournament in the Columns Forum, King of the Columnists 7. As I record this, we are waiting on the results for the quarterfinals, which I am in. And then we'll be moving into the semi-finals and obviously eventually the finals. We do these kind of writing competitions quite regularly. But also just sign up and try your hand at writing a column or two. I get great feedback every single week. And many of the comments that I receive are almost columns in and of themselves anyway. I think a lot of the a lot of you guys who may be listening who regularly leave comments on, on the main page fail to realize, frankly, how how talented you may be and I think if you sign up to the LFE forums get writing in the columns forum not only will you discover a great community to be a part of but you might tap into something you're not even sure is there so go try your hand or just sign up and, and take part in some of the threads around the forums we have wrestling threads and general threads and TV and movie threads and book threads and all kinds of threads and it's just a great community to be a part of so go sign up if you haven't done already and if you have any troubles do hit me up you can do so by any of the means that I'll plug at the end of the show, and I'll be more than happy to chase up the activation of your account, however I can do. We're of course talking about Elimination Chamber this week. Elimination Chamber 2019 happened on Sunday. And if you've been listening to the show up to this point, you'll know of course my feelings now on the men's Elimination Chamber match that headlined the pay-per-view. But I have similar affection for the women's tag team chamber match that opened the pay-per-view, the Curtain Jerker, which I thought was a wise choice for a Curtain Jerker as well, it had a grandiosity to it and a sense of historic responsibility, uh, and at the same time, 
was an action-packed match to really kick the show off and, and get us all warmed up, ready for the pay-per-view to come. So I thought it was a really clever idea to have them go on go on first, rather than headliners, of course. As I said earlier, the original rumour was that they would. I'm not certain that it's quite up to the magnificent standard of the men's elimination chamber match that ended the show, but it's worth saying that it was still up to a fantastic standard in its own right. I actually went into this match somewhat trepidatious because I had horrible memories of the other tag team elimination chain match that we got back in 2015 for the men's tag team championships which featured like you know the primetime players and the new day and I think the lucha dragons were in there and probably a bunch of other teams that I've forgotten as well and it wasn't that great it wasn't you know it wasn't awful but it just wasn't great and the last thing that you need to introduce a new championship, particularly a women's championship in the environment that we're in at the minute, is for it to be delivered in a version of a genre that is doomed to fail from the outset. So I was very nervous watching it, and those nerves kind of persisted through the opening few moments. I thought some of the initial exchanges between, I'm not going to call them the Boss and Hug Connection because it's an awful name, between Sasha Banks and Bailey, and of course the remnants of Absolution in Mandy Rose and Sonya Deville, I thought they were a little awkward, and so I was sat there getting very, very nervous very, very early on. But as the match kind of settled in and leaned into its story, it started to, to really begin to excel. I thought what it did very well was two things. First of all, you had a series of performances from some of the less experienced members of the cast of characters in the chamber that really rose to meet the occasion in which they were being asked to perform. I thought that particularly the Riot Squad made a good showing of themselves, and Absolution made a good showing of themselves eventually, uh, and that that really paid off, because sometimes with the women's divisions in WWE, you feel like all the attention gets placed on a, a select few, and so to have allowed talents like Sonya Deville and talents like uh, Sarah Logan and Liv Morgan an opportunity to really do something more than they normally do was tremendous. Obviously, a large portion of the story hinged around the size and threat posed by Nia Jax and Tamina, and I thought that that was really well executed. I liked the way that at one stage, different tandems attacked Nia and Tamina together one at a time. So you had, I think, the right squad attack them both, and then you had, you know, Absolution attack them both, and they all did it in their own way, their own unique way that spoke to the kind of team that they were. There was also a seemingly very conscious play on the manner in which several of the participants, both within teams and between teams, had history with one another. The kind of manner in which they emphasised the idea that Sasha might betray Bailey felt curiously out of place, considering that Sasha was in this match to become a tag team champion. And that felt quite misguided. But then at the same time, you had obviously the, the little showdown between Naomi and, and Mandy Rose that I really liked. And to be fair, I thought Naomi and Carmella made a good showing of themselves. Maverick is going to hate me saying this if he's listening to the show because of how he feels about Naomi and how he feels about the people I'm about to compare Carmella and Naomi to. But between the ring gear and the great... I thought Naomi and Carmella wrestled with the greatest symmetry. You know, the symmetrical manner in which they executed moves, the symmetrical manner in which they entered the ring, the the athleticism that they demonstrated. They reminded me something of a proto-women rockers, a proto-female rockers type team. And I think that there's legs in that team, actually. I would like to see them stick as a team, and I would like to see them develop that teamwork and really become the, the answer in their division to what the Rockers were in the late 1980s, that kind of more athletic, high-flying, high-octane role, I think would serve well, especially in contrast to, say, the you know the, the demolition or LOD of, of Tamina and, and Nia Jax. And before you get carried away, I'm not saying that they're as good as these teams I'm comparing them to, but I'm, I'm using the conceptual roles that these men's teams played in their own divisions of their own day to demonstrate how I think you could have built a very effective women's tag team roster out of what we saw in the chamber on Sunday. Obviously the technicians in in Sasha Banks and Bailey as well. I'd like to see some little and large teams develop. I'm not sure, you know, outside of Nia Jackson Tamina are obviously already pairing where that sits. But you know, maybe even something like Charlotte and Alexa Bliss would be a would be a great team to see. Uh, you know, but but generally speaking there's that phrase again. Um generally speaking I thought that the 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 way in which the teams were allowed to play up to individual strengths as as units was really one of the kind of the quiet but 
but very useful secret weapons that the match deployed because you've got a you've got a real sense of identity from the teams all competing like i felt like i knew that you know the right squad were the scrappy ones and i knew that sasha banks and bailey were the experienced ring generals and i knew tamina and naya were the powerhouses and i knew that carmella and naomi were the the athletic types in there i feel like i'm forgetting a team and i'm not sure Oh, the Iconics, of course. How could I forget the Iconics? You know, the character performers of the piece. I thought the Iconics were the absolute revelation in this match. And I thought that without them in it, as good as the match was beyond them, it would have suffered significantly without their contributions. I thought that they were absolutely tremendous. The opportunistic way in which they entered and immediately tried to pin <laughs> pin each of the downed four participants one at a time. And then when they kept kicking out, they just kept trying to pin them and getting upset at the referee. The, 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 the way that they interacted with Naya and Tamina was particularly fantastic. When Naya was staring them down upon her entrance and kind of slammed her fist, slammed her open-palmed hand into the chamber door, the way that, that Peyton and Billy reacted was tremendous. And then, of course, later on when Naya and Tamina entered and you got all of the other teams sort of ganging up on them only to realise the Iconics you know, were in their pot and the camera work, the reveal of that was, and the reaction of, Tami- of, uh, of Peyton and Billy when the camera panned toward to reveal them, shutting themselves in the pod. And then when the, the doors were forced open, they just turned to each other and held hands and said, I'm sorry. It was, it was just brilliant. I mean, I'm not sure that there are any female performers on the roster, perhaps outside of Becky and Charlotte, who have as masterful a grasp. And not even Becky and Charlotte may be able to, to boast this to the same degree. But Billy and Peyton have the most magnificent grasp on exactly who their characters are, exactly what the, their identity as characters are, exactly what the role it is they're there to play. And they play it to, to perfection. I thought they were an absolute revelation in the Elimination Chamber match and added so much quality and demonstrated how even in you know a, a, an athletic division that can boast some tremendous athletes and will undoubtedly provide us with some great ring action to come, I'm sure, you still need those character performers. You know, And I think, like I said, without the Iconics in that Chamber match, as good as it was generally, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as good had Billy Kane and Peyton Royce not been in it. I mean, even the way they entered the, entered the ring and you know shouting and screaming, they, they were just just a delight to watch and I totally understand why my friend Maverick from the right side of the pond is such a big fan of theirs and I can't wait to see sort of where they go as this division continues to take shape and continues to take form. I hope sooner rather than later they come to, to play a big role and I would actually vouch for the Iconics to be the WrestleMania challenges for Sasha Banks and Bailey if Sasha Banks and Bailey go in with the titles come WrestleMania as well. The Elimination Chamber for the Women's Tag Titles also had another role to play, though, outside of crowning the inaugural champions, which it did with aplomb and told a tremendous story that anchored around Nia and, and Tamina particularly. And by the way, the way that Nia and Tamina were eliminated was great as well. You know, Nia taking herself out when Bailey sidestepped the charge into the pod, allowing Tamina to be ganged up on was great. But the other role that it had to play was it had to demonstrate that there was viability behind the notion of a women's tag team division. It had to demonstrate that there were genuine tag teams within the women's contingent of WWE's main roster. And obviously, some of the teams that we saw on Sunday were kind of makeshift. Carmella and Naomi felt like it was cobbled together at the last minute to fill a a sixth spot in the chamber uh, and you know a team like uh, Tamina and Nia Jax doesn't feel like it's there for the long term you had the right squad you had Liv Morgan and, and Sarah Logan you had the remnant of absolution in Sonya Deville and, and and Mandy Rose who you know I loved the fact that they were able to to go coast to coast as well like great great idea for them to be able to demonstrate that ability but yeah, I mean, what we needed to see was the sense that this was going to be more than a two or three team division. And I think that the makeshift team that you had in Naomi and Carmella made a good showing of themselves. And I'd like to see that partnership evolve. Uh, and I thought that Nia Jackson and Tamina played their roles, you know, completely on point. And I'd like to see that partnership continue for some time as well. I'd love to see a tag team turmoil at some point. I did think at, at certain stages that maybe the better way to crown inaugural champions was with a tag team turmoil, but ultimately the match was of good enough quality that 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 kind of that opinion was kind of dispelled at, at a later stage. Um, and I think in terms of meeting that responsibility of demonstrating that women's tag team division was viable, that the Elimination Chamber match did just that. Uh, it it was really a multi-layered achievement, and 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 further an example that a tag team version of this genre works because it needed to be proven. It's not something I want to see every year. 
But it got proven that, that that version of the chamber works, and that's important. So the women actually achieved more than just, you know, crowning the first women's tag team championships. It's worth saying the emotive promo afterwards with Sasha and Bailey, I thought, added to the sense of atmosphere and added actively to the quality of the match. And the quality of the match in general kind of got better the longer it went on. I think it was a story that we felt like it was cumulative in its quality. It got better and better and better and better. And I think if you took any 10-minute span and compared it to any other 10-minute span from any other chamber, it might struggle to meet up. But the cumulative effect of everything together, from Absolution going coast to coast, to the way Tamina and Nia were written in and eliminated, to the iconic character performance, to Sasha and Bailey, you know, winning the titles, it it, it all culminated in a fan, another fantastic chamber match, not up to the same level of quality that the men's was, but nonetheless a chamber match of great quality all the same. Okay, so that's the two chamber matches discussed. There was the rest of this undercard here. I mean, frankly, you know, there's not a lot going on. I I was left wondering what the point in Ronda Rousey versus Ruby Riot even was because the shenanigans that took place after the match could easily have been written in without a match taking place before them. Narratively, it seemed to serve no purpose. Uh, You know, I've seen it espoused on Twitter by my friend Maverick that it gave Ronda some teeth back. I'm not really sure that that was necessary. And Ruby Riot feels as a character and as a performer both like it she deserved better than the treatment she was handed. And I'm not sure why you would have the squash match on pay-per-view and the competitive match on, on TV rather than the other way around. It feels like a reverse learning curve, which I have issues with as well. But it's worth saying that I thought the shenanigans that took place afterwards were great. I think Charlotte, as all the hype Becky Lynch has been getting, I think Charlotte hasn't had anywhere near the credit given to her that she deserves in terms of of, of lifting her own game to meet that of Becky Lynch. And I think you know she's really coming into her own as the queen persona and this idea that it's the divine right right of queens to rule I think is one that really kind of feeds into what they are doing with her sense of entitlement and you know it's had the desired effect you know it's it's Charlotte's sense of uh, of of being owed something of being owed this Wrestlemania match is really further exacerbating the hostility that the fans have towards her and that's old school and it's great Becky Lynch Limping to the ring and, and beating the crap out of both of them with a crutch serves its role. You know, I mean, I'm not on board the Becky Lynch hype train like most other people are. I see her more as a con than a man. But we'll see how it plays out. I thought the tertiary reaction between the three of them was great. I liked the way that Ronda just stood back and allowed Becky to wail away on Charlotte because Ronda's not going to come to Charlotte's aid. She's not going to care that Charlotte's getting her ass kicked. She's not going to care about the brutality of it. So, interested to see how and when reprisals come from Ronda, in particular after she got busted open the hard way. So, yeah, it was it was decent enough, if not all that great. It was nice to see Finn Balor pick up the Intercontinental Championship. The story told there went exactly as you might expect it. And sometimes that's the best thing to do. Sometimes the obvious answer is the obvious answer because it's the best answer. I think the real steal, though, because I'm not even going to give the SmackDown Live Tag Team Championship match the time of day, given that its entire production was was indicative of every problem I have with not just the presentation of part-timers, but particularly the presentation of Shane McMahon, so I'm not going to cover that, but... Excuse me, I'm yawning. The, the, uh, the, the real coup here, I think, on the undercard was the pre-show Cruiserweight match. Now, if you haven't had the time to go and check out that pre-show Cruiserweight Championship match, you really should. I'm a big proponent of watching pre-shows before the pay-per-views. I do the alternative pre-shows because the talking heads really are so just deflating in how unoriginal and unimaginative they are that I need to just be able to to get into my own headspace to get excited for pay-per-views. That's why I do the alternative pre-shows. But I still watch pre-shows because the matches they offer up sometimes throw out an absolute brilliant piece of work. And I can tell you now that if the Cruiserweight title match had been on the main show, it would be in the conversation as one of the classics of 2019. I firmly believe that. It was tremendously done stuff. I was a huge fan of the Fatal 4-Way Cruiserweight Championship match they did at Royal Rumble on the Royal Rumble pre-show. And a large reason was, yes, because it was character-driven. The way that Hideo Itami was presented in that match I thought was inspired. He was presented not necessarily as the biggest, but more of a juggernaut than the biggest because of his toughness, because of his, of his sense of danger that he elicits. 
what was demonstrated in the match between Buddy Murphy and Akira Tozawa last Sunday, I felt, was exactly where that could have led, that presentation of Hideo Itami could have led. So in one sense, it left a bit of a bitter taste. I'm still kind of sour that we've lost Hideo Itami from the 205 Live roster because I felt like he had a lot to add. And the presentation of his character, as we saw at Royal Rumble, was really fantastic uh, and could have led into exactly the kind of match we got this last Sunday. What we got this last Sunday was this kind of version of David versus Goliath, yes, but it was such a unique take. And the reason it was a unique take was because of the subtext that sat beneath it about the fact that Kiritazawa once beat another similar juggernaut that dominated the division, as Buddy Murphy seems to be doing in the form of Neville, of course, and that he could do it again. Now, it wasn't made too much of a point of. I think it was mentioned at one stage actively on commentary, but it's not like they harped on and banged on about it all the way through. I think as a result, what you got was a real tantalizing sense of unpredictability that might not otherwise have been there because Akira Tozawa had upset a champion in the past before when perhaps we least expected it, so it could happen again. But also it's worth saying that the way the match was wrestled was fantastic as well. To tap into the idea of a size difference between two cruiserweights of, of visually speaking at least, a very similar stature was great. Some of the set pieces they did, in particular one moment where Akira Tozawa goes to, I think, it's like a, a hurricane runner or something like that off the top rope, I can't remember fully, and Buddy Murphy just sort of free lifts him up into the air on, on the top rope. I mean, it's it's, and then you get a counter to that as well. It's an exhilarating exchange, the kind of thing that 205 Live has really cut its teeth on, being able to, to show these kind of matches. And looking at Wikipedia, this was a match that went almost 15 minutes. It got the crowd hot, and for what it's worth, I thought the crowd stayed hot for pretty much the rest of the night. And it had a, an arena that was still filling up, chanting this is awesome and all the usual stuff. It was a quintessential 205 Live match, in the sense that it was given this spot that intimated it was a nothing event. And it turned out to be an event with a capital E. Like I say, if you haven't yet checked it out, do be sure to find the time to go and do it. And you'll enjoy the hell out of it. I mean, if if you've enjoyed the hell out of 205 Live any time over the last 12 months, I would put this match in quality, qualitative terms up against any match of the last 12 months, include, in 12 months, including the Ali matches that I'm so fond of. I, I thought that highly of it. It's also worth saying here that I think the spirit of Ali continues to embody 205 Live as well. It continues to inform 205 Live. We saw that both last week with a tremendous no-disqualification match between Noam Dar and Tony Nese, which you should definitely go and check out if you haven't already. And again, we saw it in the pre-show match between Buddy Murphy and Akira Tozawa on Sunday as well. So, great stuff from the two of them there. And a match that's... You know, between that match and the two elimination chambers, you have the makeups for a fantastic pay-per-view. I thought the pay-per-view in general just missed out on on really getting a, a sort of a fully passing grade, because its undercard, I felt, was was relatively weak. The Intercontinental Championship match, I feel, would have been better off as a one-on-one. The SmackDown Live Tag Team Championship match, as I said, I felt was completely misinformed in the way it presented the Miz and Shane McMahon as being equal to uh, the Usos and the fact that the Usos only won sort of almost by luck, sort of by the, more by the Miz's and Shane's mistakes than by their own ability as a team, which is ludicrous to suggest because they're one of the most iconic teams, of, if not the most iconic teams of their generation. And the women's thing, like I said earlier, was was kind of a write-off. I'm not even sure why it was on the card in the first place. Again, I feel like I'm missing a match here. Uh, and I'm not sure... Oh, the Braun Cor- Corbin... Sorry, the Braun Strowman Baron Corbin thing. Of course I forgot that. You know, I mean, that again, this is a storyline that's gone on far too long. The match was pretty ordinary. And the post-match beatdown was as predictable as it was lamentable. I'd kind of hope and hoped that they'd forgotten about this trio that they'd put together of Baron Corbin, Bobby Lashley and Drew McIntyre and I'm not sure whether I should refer to them as the the Charisma Vacuum or by the name X-Pac Heat because either way, I mean, I'm not sure I've seen a less intimidating, less inspiring set of wrestlers. You know, this doesn't so much scream Shield 2.0 as it does Three Man Band 2.0 which is fitting considering Drew McIntyre's in it. 
not inspired by them at all, and I hope that the sooner that gets sort of written away from the show, the better. And I hope Braun Strowman finds some backup. I mean, where was Kurt Angle? I mean, that to me was was quite telling. Not that I have any eagerness to see Kurt Angle anytime soon, but he's been sort of Braun Strowman's regular backup on Monday Night Raw, so it seemed odd to me he wouldn't be on hand because you should have been able to predict any decent tactician should have been able to predict that in a no-disqualifications environment, Baron Corbin was going to call on the help of his of his bosom buddies, of his of his best mates there. Interesting they did the Shield triple powerbomb, and that the commentary sort of passingly referenced that, especially with what they've just been doing with Dean Ambrose and seemingly returning him to his heroic foundations, which I could talk at length about individually, incidentally anyway, but he wasn't on Elimination Chamber, so I shan't. Um, I hope it doesn't result in a Shield versus X-Pac Heat match, because honestly... I think we've had enough Shield reunions over the last couple of years now, and, and Seth's on his own journey right now, and I want to see that come to fruition. So, But I wouldn't be adverse necessarily to seeing Dean and Seth back brought up maybe in a six-man at Fastlane, because that's an opportunity for Seth to get in the ring again, and I think that that storyline really needs that, not necessarily because WWE have done a poor job of building it. I think they've done well to work around Seth's back at the minute, but because everything else, so many other things seem to be getting red hot, whether it's Kofi Kingston, Daniel Bryan, the women's stuff, that it feels like it needs something physical to happen to really give it a bit of energy back. Uh, And a six-man gives Seth the opportunity to do his thing without having to shoulder too much of the hard work. So who knows? I guess we'll have to wait and see. And that about wraps up my thoughts in general about Elimination Chamber 2019. As I said, a show that I really enjoyed, generally speaking, a show that left me feeling more positive about the immediate and long-term direction of WWE than negative. That hope is very fragile, especially after a a woeful follow-up on Monday Night Raw. But I think there's reasons to be excited, not least of all that the post-WrestleMania landscape, if the championships go the way that they really ought to, Daniel Bryan, WWE Champion, Becky Lynch, Raw Women's Champion, uh, you've got Finn Balor, Intercontinental Champion, you've got Revival now as Monday Night Raw Tag Champs, you've got the Usos as SmackDown Live Tag Champs. If you can add Becky Lynch as Raw Women's Champion and Seth Rollins as Universal Champ, then you've got a hell of a of a roster of champions there to be carrying the product through an exhilarating spring and summer, putting on tremendous matches left, right and centre. And maybe we could try and get back to some of the quality that we had, maybe, maybe not at the height of 2014, which really needs some more consistent storytelling, but perhaps at least the height of 2015 when you were still getting great pay-per-view quality, even if the TV quality was was a little more haphazard. But if we can get those that retinue of champions in place after WrestleMania, then I'm going to be very, very excited for what, what happens thereafter. A pleasing lack so far, and I'm not sure I should say this as a believer in tempting fate, but touch wood, a pleasing lack so far of part-timers. Isn't that interesting? We've got one pay-per-view now between now and WrestleMania, so WrestleMania is going to start taking shape a lot quicker. But it looks like we might get Styles and Orton. It looks like Brian. There's talk about Brian facing off against someone coming back to the company, but it feels like that's probably more likely to be someone like Kevin Owens than it is someone like Batista who has been in talks with with AEW. But even if we just get that, yes, you've got Brock Lesnar in the World Championship scene, but so far there doesn't seem to be anything on the horizon for Triple H. There doesn't seem to be any mention of The Undertaker. And all the usual culprits, I mean, it looks like we're going to get the Miz and Shane McMahon, I guess. But if we're offset with, you know, full-timers winning championships, and we're offset with a series of full-timer exclusive matches that are given you know, a big stage, including the women's championship matches, then then we could be looking at a very positive WrestleMania. I'm hesitant to get too excited. I got a little bit excited last year and got bitten for it, so I'm not gonna go all the way in, but I'm emotionally invested. They've got my they've got my curiosity. Now they need to get my attention. And it's gonna be between Fastlane and WrestleMania that rests on their shoulders. But ultimately I think coming out of Elimination twenty nineteen in general terms was or generally speaking, was uh, I think we're in a healthy place. And that has me excited enough. Whether you agree or disagree, of course, uh, you can hit me up and let me know. At LOP Plan on Twitter is the best way to reach me, but you can also find me on Facebook. Just look up Samuel Plan. Drop me a comment alternatively on lordsofpain.net on any of my columns or my podcast posts. Or, as I said earlier on in the show, you can, of course, as well sign up to LOP Forums, where there's a whole wealth of content for you to sink your teeth into, and a great community of wrestling fans who are all more than willing and ready to sit and debate the ins and outs of WWE, as well as the other promotions in the world of wrestling. So go sign up there as well. You won't regret it. LOP changed my life. It can just about change yours as well. Of that, I am certain. That about does it for me. Don't forget that in a couple of weeks' time, after Fastlane has been and gone, I'll be doing a pair of special 
editions of Sports Entertainment is Dead, where I do live, real-time watch-alongs with what I like to refer to as the Tetralogy, that being Shawn Michaels vs. The Undertaker at WrestleMania 25, Shawn Michaels vs. The Undertaker at WrestleMania 26, back-to-back in one week, and the week after, Triple H vs. The Undertaker at WrestleMania 27, and Triple H vs. The Undertaker at WrestleMania 28, back-to-back as well, the Tetralogy, but all about that in a couple of weeks. Be sure to tune into those special editions, of course, next week. Now, let me just check here the calendar, because I think next week, my timing initially had me thinking next week would have to be the Fast Lane alternative pre-show. It turns out it's not, so my timings are actually a little bit off here. It's the week after that the Fast Lane alternative pre-show will drop. So that means I'm going to have to find some content for next week. I don't know, maybe I'll look around and see if I can get a special guest on. Not sure what we're going to talk about yet, but I'm sure we can get to that in due course. So until next week, keep your eyes on social media for my announcement as to what next week's going to be about. Until then, thank you for listening. I look forward to hearing from you guys on social media or in the forums. Stay safe, and I will see you this time next Wednesday. <laughs>